The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning. It's a delight to see you all here this morning, especially on Thanksgiving week or the beginning of Thanksgiving week, I suppose. It's nice to see new faces who are visiting, so particular welcome to all those who are guests and, of course, seeing old faces as well, those who have come back to their families for Thanksgiving. So it's good to be here with you. Will you please pray with me? Father, this morning we do pray that as we come to your word, that by your spirit you would take your words down at the very marrow of our bones to the very bottom of our hearts and souls that we might be changed, to love you more truly and faithfully. So, Father, to that end, I pray that the words of my mouth this morning and the meditation of all of our hearts, that they would be pleasing, that they would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are concluding this morning our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and we are going to focus on the last words of the Lord's Prayer, the conclusion. The last words said, uh, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And if you've been paying attention, and I certainly hope you have over this sermon series in the Lord's Prayer, then you'll have probably realize that those words we say at the Eucharist when we say the Lord's Prayer, but in our reading in Matthew, all through the sermon series, we haven't been saying those words at the end of the Lord's Prayer, and they're not there in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's not exactly quite right. Uh, the reality is, is that we don't know if they were there or not. There are many manuscripts. Some of the early ones of the manuscripts of Matthew don't have those words, but many of the later ones do. And so we're not exactly sure if this was added later on, or rather, perhaps this was always expected to be said, because it's a very normal prayer in Jesus's time to close out a prayer, a concluding end of the prayer. It comes actually from First uh, Chronicles chapter 29, when David prays after receiving all the gifts from the temple, and he prays almost words exactly similar to this. And many prayers in Jesus's day and age and in the New Testament were closed this way. And so the church, of course, has used these, these three words, the, yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever, amen, to close out the Lord's Prayer for centuries. And so that's what we're going to focus on tonight is the conclusion to the sermon series on the Lord's Prayer and to wrap up all that we have been talking about. Because if you hear those words, they do have a sense of finality to them, don't they? A sense of certainty, wrapping everything up at the end. In the Lord's Prayer, there are no other words like this, except for the very beginning, which is our Father in heaven. Everything else is an ask or prayer, asking that God would do this, even asking that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come and all these things. But this here, like our Father in heaven, is just a statement of fact. This is true. Yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen, period, fact. It is resolved. There's a, this might be an apocryphal tale, I don't really know, but it's about Mozart, and uh, when he was, after a late night in Vienna, I don't know, at the clubs in Vienna, I suppose, in the Baroque period, but he would come home, and everyone else in the house would be asleep, and he would sidle up to his piano, 
And while everyone's sleeping in the house, we begin to quietly play some scales. And then he would get louder. And then he would get louder. And then he'd just be banging out of scales. And he would get all the way up to the very last note of the last scale to resolve everything. And he would just stop and go to bed. Woken everyone up in the house and leaving them with this unresolved note, you know. It was sort of like he sat down at the piano and was like, bum, 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 bum. That's Beethoven. So I guess you guys, you know, wake up here, people. No, but you know, even in playing that, we know what the next note is. You feel it even in your soul. You want that next note to be played. You need it to be played to resolve. You're expecting to hear it. You're wanting to hear it. And ending the Lord's prayer here, yours is the kingdom, power, and glory, can feel a little bit like the unresolved note. Because there is some tension in the confidence of saying yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory when many of our prayers are yet unanswered. When many things are unresolved and incomplete in our own lives, in the world around us, in other people's lives. You know, 10 minutes on Twitter and you will see screaming at you the unresolved and unredeemed realities of our world. And of course, several of you in this congregation over the last two months, several of you last week, Adam was praying about them receiving cancer diagnoses. Certainly they feel the tension the unresolved reality where this is God's kingdom and he has the kingdom and the power and the glory, and yet here I am with this reality in my life. You heard Adam pray about Cooper Sayer. I don't know if you know Cooper, but he went to Regents in Hyde Park and was involved in Westlake at Young Life, uh, Young Life at Westlake, and he was a fellow this last summer with us in the fellows program during the whole summer. Last Sunday on the way back from Dripping Springs, he got in a car accident and is fighting for his life right now in the hospital. Certainly his family feels, certainly all those who know and love him, feel the unresolvedness of things. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 27, touches on this very thing. So this morning I want to look at two things. One, David's one thing, the one thing David needs, and then the end of prayer. Notice first in the psalm how David is just full of utter confidence all throughout the psalm. Psalm 27, verse 1, whom shall I be afraid? Who will I be afraid of? Verse 2, my enemies, they'll stumble, they'll fall. Verse 3, I will be confident, even if there's armies against me. Verse 6, my head will be lifted up. I will sing. I will make melody. Verse 10, the Lord will take me in. 13, I believe that I will look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And you could look at all that and say, well, here's David, full of confidence. And why shouldn't he be? I mean, he's the king of Israel. He's the top of the social and political hierarchy. I mean, he's probably the wealthiest person in Israel. Things probably really aren't that bad. Of course, he's got a confident that things are going to work out in his direction. But if you look throughout the rest of the psalm a little more directly, you see that all things are actually not going very well for David. He has people who are trying to destroy him, to bring him down, to take him out, to kill him. And look here at verse two, these people, his enemies, his adversaries are being compared to a ravenous pack of animals seeking to come and eat him, to eat his body like a bunch of wolves chasing after a deer. And then there's an army outside coming to bring war. And in verse 12, his enemies, what do they want to do? They're lying about him. They're trying to bring him down by any means possible, even lying and breathing out threats against him and violence against him. And you could say, well, Josh, this is a poem. He's using poetic style. This is all hyperbolic or hypothetical, except that we know that all these things actually did happen in David's life. Multiple times, in fact. 
Several times David was on the run with people, his enemies chasing him, in which he narrowly escaped, hiding out in caves or other places where the Lord had to protect him. He had enemies outside the nation of Israel trying to bring war and destroy the nation of Israel. He had enemies within the nation of Israel trying to upend him and take him down. King Saul tried to kill him multiple times. His mentor turned on him later in his life. His longtime friends abandoned him. His own son tried to kill him and take the kingdom. So this is not just poetical styling. This is David's actual kingdom and his actual power and his actual glory or significance in danger. It's interesting to me, those three things, kingdom, power, and glory. You know, the Lord's Prayer ends on those three things, but those three things are often the places of our greatest anxieties. Do you realize that? We're afraid of losing kingdoms. Well, what is a kingdom? Is where you are in control. We are afraid of not being in control. Losing power, we are afraid of not being able to do things to affect our situation, not being able to do stuff, period. We are fearful of becoming impotent. Glory, glory is significance. We are afraid of being forgotten, of being found insignificant, of people not caring about us. And in our kingdom and power and glory, the anxieties that that produces in our lives, we try to find kingdom and power glory somewhere, even if it's in small, silly, meaningless things. When I was in college, perhaps you remember the video game Halo. Uh, When I was in college, I was in a house with eight guys, and that's basically all we ever did. I don't even know how we graduated from college, because we would play Halo in the morning and at afternoon and at night, and in between those places, we would go to class. And there was a lot of guys in my house who were really good, and I lost a lot. One time, we had a, a crew party at our house, and so all the guys from Campus Crusade came over to our house, and a couple of guys came up to me, and three guys who had never played before, and they said, hey, could we play with you? I said, yes, you can. <laughs> and we sat down, and we played me versus all three of these guys, and they'd never played before. They didn't even know what they were doing, and I just trounced them. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was so, it was epically bad for them and epically great for me. And I, what I did afterwards is I stood up, and I took the remote, and I just tossed it to the TV, and walked out like I was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my own life. But I really, truly did. And that insignificant thing, I acted like an arrogant fool. Why? Because I thought and I needed to feel that I was king, that I was full of power, that I was full of significance, even if it was in a meaningless video game, 30 minutes in my life. And how much energy and effort do you spend to have something, anything to have control of, something to make you feel or just to make you look powerful in the world and to others, something just to give you a sense of significance and importance. David, of course, had all of those things. He had a kingdom. He had all political power. He had significance as the royalty in the nation of Israel. But look here, all of those things are threatened in this psalm, in Psalm 27. David has no control over these people who are lying against him, trying to bring his kingdom down. What does he say in verse 12? He asks asks the Lord, please do not give me up to them. I don't have the power to prevent being given over into the hands of these people who are trying to take me out. Please do not give me up to them. I don't have the power. Then what does he resort to in verse 5? He doesn't resort to, Lord, give me strength and political, military power, anything like that. What does he resort to in verse 5? Hiding. Cover me up. Shelter me. 
put the blanket on top of me. These are words that are indicating what his feeling of impotence is. I don't have the power to fight this. Just cover me up and shelter me. And then even in verse 10 here, even his own father and mother have forsaken him. Who's supposed to never forget you? Who will you be significant to no matter how silly and bad and pathetic looking your art project is? Your mother, she will always be significant to your mother and your family and your parents. And here David says, even if they forsake me and they have forsaken me, his kingdom, his power, and his glory and sense of significance, they're all so fragile. So why throughout the psalm does David have this confidence? Is it a false confidence? Is it just bravado? Or is he resting in something else? Now look at verse four here, because this is the thing that David is resting in. This is the one thing that David wants, the one thing that he has to have. He says, it's not justice, it's not peace, it's not power, it's not glory, it's not health, it's not wealth. What is the one thing David says is the thing he must have? The emphasis here in verse four in the Hebrew is that one thing. It's one, the single solitary thing, that I may dwell in the Lord's house, gaze upon his beauty, and inquire the Hebrew words related to mental activity, like meditate in the Lord's temple. What does he want? To dwell in the house of the Lord is to be constantly near God, to gaze on him. Who gazes? Lovers gaze. People who are in love with each other gaze at each other. They gaze at each other because they simply delight in being known by each other and simply being with each other. They're gazing out of joy and to inquire is to be mentally absorbed with God. In other words, what is David's one thing? To have God, heart, mind, and body. David's one thing is the presence of God himself. You notice throughout the rest of the psalm here, every verb here after this is in the future tense. He will hide me. He will lift me up. I will offer. I will sing. In verse 13, I shall, that's future tense, look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, and finally at the end, wait upon the Lord. If you're saying wait upon the Lord and everything is the future tense, what he is saying is God has not yet answered all my prayers. I am asking God to do all these things, but he has not yet resolved all of my needs, but I am saying I will have all these things because I have the one thing. Everything else that is unresolved, I can now look at through a lens of hope and expectation and trust because I have the one necessary thing. And that is the heart of these last words in the Lord's prayer for kingdom, power, and glory. To pray that is a prayer of what's called a prayer of repose. That means that we are praying to dwell in the presence of God and to gaze upon his beauty, to place all our fears, our anxieties, our dreams, to put them away and put them onto the Lord so we might rest in him and rest in the one thing. In other words, we say, here is God, our father. All things are his. And I, it's even me, am also his. If I have him, then I have all things. Because every human soul will always be yearning and incomplete until it's resting in God. Each of us were made for God. So verse eight here in Psalm 27 is saying that we were made for the face of God, to seek the Lord's face, to see him face to face. We were made to receive his smile. We were made to be warmed in the presence of his love. We were made to stand before God face to face. And at the bottom of all of our desires, 
At the bottom of all our love and appreciation for things that are good and beautiful is ultimately us finding and desiring God himself and finding the beauty and goodness ultimately in God. So whether you know it or not, your soul is craving God's holy presence in the exact same way that when you are hungry, your body craves food. And only your soul can be satisfied by God. The ending of the Lord's prayer here is a prayer of resting and repose in God himself. It's the end or the purpose and direction of all our prayers ultimately, which is to get God himself. We've been saying this actually all throughout the sermon on the Lord's prayer. I hope you've realized that from the beginning to end, from our father all the way down to here forever. Amen. We keep emphasizing again and again that the Lord's prayer is pointing us not to getting things from God and using God, but rather getting God himself and desiring in him. Theologians, when they talk about prayer, they say that prayer is a means of grace. That might be a familiar language to you or it might be confusing or unfamiliar language, but it simply means this, that the way that God communicates his presence, his grace to us is through prayer. Through prayer, God gives himself to us. He shares his presence with us. Now, is that how you would describe your prayer life? Are you like David here in Psalm 27? Experiencing and delighting in God himself, gazing on his beauty, resting in his presence, seeking his face. It would be ironic, I think, after a long series on the Lord's Prayer in which we analyzed and dissected and explained every single phrase and facet of the Lord's Prayer that we as a church never ended up praying more. That we as a church never ended up experiencing the presence of God in prayer more. We're often happy to come where we can experience the other means of grace, reading the Lord's, reading the word of God, coming and hearing the word of God preached in prayer, coming around the sacraments and experiencing the presence of of Christ in the Eucharist. But let us not miss out in prayer, experiencing the presence of Christ in prayer. God is waiting for you in prayer. At the very end of all of our sermon series in the Lord's Prayer, this is your invitation. Begin. Begin again. Come and pray. December 2nd, there's a silent retreat, half day for men in the morning and women in the afternoon. Sign up for that. Come out and spend half of your Saturday praying to the Lord and seeking his face. The men will be praying after Thanksgiving week on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. in the morning in the chapel. Come, pray. Tomorrow morning, begin your day with prayer. Begin by simply saying the Lord's Prayer every single day and focus on one of the phrases, even as we have in the sermon series throughout the rest of that day. And end your prayers, whatever your prayers may be. And in the same way, the Lord's Prayer ends here. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever. Amen. So that you remind yourself that my kingdom and my glory and my power, all those things are really in the end, just my anxiety. But real rest and real peace and hope is found in yours is the kingdom. Yours, the power and glory. A friend of mine recently told me about one of their friends who had been diagnosed with Parkinson's. 
And they said that their friend was speaking about that to them. And they said this, everything that happens to me comes from Jesus. So if it's okay with Jesus, then it's okay with me. Those are some profound words of faith. And I pray that they become mine. But I guarantee you, those words were not spoken by someone who never prayed. Those were words spoken by someone who had sought God in prayer and found him and found a peace in him that surpasses all rational understanding. If it's okay with Jesus, then it's okay with me. How can she say that? It's because she knows this Jesus. Jesus, the word of God. That is the very embodied communication of God's very nature and character. In all of his life, that's what he displayed. And how does Jesus and God's character reveal what his kingdom looks like? Read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5. And you'll see what Jesus' kingdom is meant to look like and will look like. And how does Jesus win his kingdom? It's not through military strategy and power and might, but rather through his death upon the cross. How does he exercise his power? By laying his power aside to rescue you and to rescue me and to bring us into relationship with him and bring us into his kingdom. Our first Corinthians New Testament passage here in verse 12 tells us that we are fully known by God. Think about what that means. Though God knows everything about me and everything about you, And what, despite what we might expect, Jesus says that his moment of greatest significance, his moment of glory is displayed when he dies upon the cross for you and for me. Despite knowing everything about us, good and bad, he says, I want you in my kingdom with me. If that is his power and his kingdom and his glory and how he exercises it, How can we not say, if it is okay with you, it's okay with me? How can we not say, along with David, I believe I shall look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? The notes may still be unresolved, but in Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we hear the melody. And by faith, we know the musician who is playing the song, and we know what the resolving note will be and how the music ends. That's what our first Corinthians passage from 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. It's talking about the end, the end of all time, where Paul says prophecies, tongues, knowledge, verse 8, all these ways that God was sharing his presence and explaining, communicating himself to the people in the church in Corinth. He says all these things, they're all meant to point forward to an end because they're only partial revelations of who God is and of his character, and they are going to end. One day it will all pass away, he says. We know in part, like a child with an incomplete understanding Children don't understand. Well, let me tell you the story. She's not going to like that I tell the story, but one time I was in an argument with my daughter, Elliot, and I said, you can't do this. And she says, well, why not? I said, you don't understand all the realities of life and why this is a bad idea. And she looked at me and she said, I am 10. I know how life works. And I thought, that is the very clear evidence that you do not know how life works. But like a child, when I was... A child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. A child doesn't have the complete picture. They don't understand all things. Or like looking in a mirror, Paul says. That's where we are at right now. The Greek here could be translated, we see puzzling reflections in a mirror. That is, we can't quite see. 
how all the things in my life and the experiences of my life, even the hard and sad and terrifying ones, and how they and all the ones in your life and in other people's lives all over the world and through all throughout history, how they are all like a puzzle supposed to fit together. When we look at them now, they see unresolved and incomplete. But a day is coming, Paul says here, when we will fully know. When we shall have God face to face. And in that time, then prayer will stop. Then will be the end of prayer. Because we have reached its purpose and its goal. We'll have no need to ask God for bread, for absolution, for rescue, for health, for his presence and sustenance, or for his peace, because all our prayers will have been answered and fulfilled, and we will have eternity in the very presence of God face to face. That is your future. Hear me, that is your future if you are in Jesus Christ. And we pray now to remind ourselves of the music of God's goodness in Jesus Christ until the final note is played. It was said that uh, Mozart's father, Leopold, when he was upstairs, he would be awoken by hearing this music. And when Mozart would play the very last scale and not play that unresolved note, Mozart would be asleep, happy, quietly in bed. And Leopold, tormented by not hearing that last note, would get out of bed, come down the stairs, walk over to the piano, and play that last boom. My friends, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension were the first notes played on the scale. And soon God will send Jesus down the stairs and he will put his hands on the keys of the piano of history and he will play that last boom. And then as the hymn goes, hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight and prayer to praise. Amen. Father, we do ask that you would make us a people who would seek you in prayer, that we would desire you and want you and pursue you and seek your face. And Father, help us to trust and believe even all the promises that you give to us, that if we seek you, we will find you. If we knock, the door will be opened unto us. So we pray, Father, make us a people who seek you, who knock on the door, who pray to you and give us your very presence in life. In Christ's name, amen.